encourage you to open them to Nehemiah chapter 1. And in a moment, we'll be reading along together. It's one of my favorite books and passages from Scripture. We reflect on the work of God in developing our identities as gospel-centered people. It started with what should have been just a, a simple prospecting trip. Four geologists in a helicopter set out over southern Siberia, 150 miles north of the Mongolian border, in search for ore. They were flying around this vast wilderness uh, that was just complete bush, trying to find a place where they could set down and prospect the ground or the earth to see if there was ore to be found so that they could keep the Soviet machine going. It was 1978, and as they were flying around southern Siberia, they brought that helicopter down into uh, a valley that held a tributary. It was an amazing valley. The walls were almost vertical, and it was covered in birch and larch trees that almost came to the water's edge. As they looked for places to land, really there was nowhere. Every time they would try to approach the water's edge, there they'd see a little spot where maybe they could land the plane. The downdraft from the rotors would flow around those little birch and larch trees, and it just made it impossible. They tried time after time after time with no luck, and finally as they'd come down and tried to touch down and taken off again, the pilot called out over the radio and he said, you're not going to believe this, but there's a clearing ahead. Hours of trying, and finally, to their bewilderment and their amazement, there was a clearing of land. It was 6,000 feet above the water's edge, but you could see it from a distance away, and as they, tried to, as they tried to touch down, there it was in front of them, and it made no sense. They flew closer, and the closer they got, they began to recognize that this wasn't just a God-created space, that someone or something had stepped in and cleared the territory. As they got closer, they looked down into their amazement. Hundreds of miles from any measure of civilization, there was something that looked like a garden. And then there in the corner was a shack. They did multiple passes over top, and they didn't see anyone or anything, but sure enough, this was created somehow by humans. And so they put the plane down, and they, as they got, or they put the helicopter down, and as they got out of the helicopter, they gathered a few things that they thought maybe they could use uh, to present as a gift to whomever it was that might be living there. But they were scared and fearful. According to the Soviet regime, nobody lived in this part of the world, and so they didn't know what they were getting into, and so they packed a pistol on their side as well. They hiked for hours, and the closer they got to that clearing, 6,000 feet above the river's edge, more evidence began to show that this indeed was human beings who had cleared the space. There was a trail Soon there was crude tools made out of, out of uh, logs and branches and, and stone wrapped together with what looked to be kind of the guts of animals. Very almost prehistoric. And they got close and sure enough there was the garden and there was potatoes in the garden and then there was that shelter. They wondered if maybe it was a shed, maybe it was a storage facility, but no, there was a window in the side of it and there was a door. And as they walked close to that shelter, soon the door began to creak open and out walked a man like they hadn't seen. His hair was long and dirty, matted and tattered. His beard was disheveled and, and just all over the place. His, his face weathered and, and wrinkles everywhere. And in an extremely quiet whisper, he says to them, well, I guess you've come this far. Why don't you come on in? The geologist, scared but excited, brought their gifts and 
they cautiously stepped into the house, and as they stepped into the darkness, they looked around, and it was hard to distinguish what was inside, but soon they began to hear sobs coming from the corner of that building. And there they could make out two silhouetted figures, two women, two girls, who were lamenting and sobbing before them. It was uncontrollable. They kept calling out, this is because of our sins. It's because of our sins that you found us here today. And there was a brokenness in their spirit that was haunting. The geologists were overcome, and so they went back outside the building, and they sat out in front and, and just waited for these people to come out. And as they did, they started to get the story of the Lykoff family. 42 years earlier, they'd been living in a remote village in Siberia. And, and the, the communist regime had come around to start to persecute Christians. One night as they were going through the town, uh, a Soviet commander came over, a communist commander came over, and he pointed a gun at Mr. Lish, uh, Mr. Lykoff's brother's head, and he killed him. It was devastating. The Lykoff family couldn't believe it. These were good Christians. They were Orthodox Christians who tried to live their life right, and now they felt that even though they had tried to do right, they couldn't remain in this place they had lived for generations, and so they fled. They fled into the forest. They disappeared. They ran off in fear. And the story goes, as the, ge as the geologists discovered over time, that there were certain seasons in their life where they were, were scared and fearful that maybe the Soviets were coming again and so, or the communists were coming again. And so they would move deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest. They had no idea of world events that had taken place. No idea that World War II had happened. No idea that humans had landed on the moon. It blew their mind to find out that there were satellites in space. In the 1950s, they said that they ate the, the leaves from the Rowanberry tree just so that they could survive. These were people that loved God. These were people who learned to read and write from the Gospels, the only book they had, the Scriptures. They learned to read and write from it, but their identity was built out of brokenness, out of fear. And while, yes, God had provided for them and blessed them in many ways, they were not experiencing the fullness of life that maybe they could have. And instead of crowns of victory and crowns of joy and blessing that they should have been wearing and that we should be wearing as Christians, they wore crowns of fear and shame and sorrow and brokenness. This morning we want to we're kind of between sermon series. We spent the summer talking through uh, this wonderful series called This Is Us, where we talk through the values of who we are as University Drive Alliance Church. Values to be people uh, that live differently in this world, that live for Jesus, that point others towards him, and that are radically generous. People that pray, people that believe in the workings and power of the gospel. And now, this morning, we're just going to take a break, a one-off. But in light of the series that we've done of who we are as a church, I just felt led all summer as I've been preparing for this morning to talk about the identity of who we are as believers in Christ and how at times sin can break in and break that down and how we can gain it back. So if you have your Bibles, I want to read to you this morning. I think the bulletin says, and behind me it says, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 11, but I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11. It's a wonderful passage, one of my favorites in Scripture, one of my favorite stories 
that inspires me each time. And I've been praying that this morning would not just inspire me, but would inspire us all to embrace the God-given identities that Jesus has for us. So if you'll follow along, I'll read the word of God for us here. Starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Akaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction of you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled people or at the farthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. All of us have stories of brokenness. All of us have stories of heartbreak and loss that go way beneath the surface, don't we? Events from our former years or perhaps even the present have had a powerful effect upon the identities that we carry and the understandings for how Jesus blesses and how he moves in our lives. And I think we could probably go around this room and I would guess that we're 320 or 350 people here this morning. I would guess that we could go around this room and if we were to go one at a time, we would hear 320 or 350 stories of how at some point in our life, sin has affected us, and it's affected the way that we carry ourselves, the way we connect with others. It's affected the way that, that we consider ourselves in God's kingdom. Something or someone has happened to us, or we have happened to someone else, and the result of that encounter has left an impression upon our hearts that to this day can speak into our thoughts can speak into the way that we see ourselves as God's kids and power, powerfully shape the lives that we live in. And oftentimes, in those moments, we consider ourselves to be defeated or deflated. We get discouraged without even realizing the authority or the identity that Jesus has given to us, not just to move forward, friends, but to move beyond the brokenness of our lives and experience deep inner healing and transformation. So that the words that we carry over our heads are not words of shame and brokenness and defeat and sorrow. But instead, the words that we carry over our heads, this is what Jesus does for us. This is the gospel. The words that we carry over our heads are gospel-centered words of identity given to us from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that bring, that bring blessing and joy and abundance to our lives rather than sorrow and defeat. Friends, Jesus didn't come to this earth so that 
you know, we would just have one salvation moment and then we would move on and he would move on. Jesus is consistently and constantly working in our lives to redeem our stories and transform our hearts. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. He loves you. He loves me. He treasures us. He values us. And he wants us to live in victory. And it's ironic, sort of, that I preach this message this morning because I confess to you, I confess to us all, that there have been moments in my life, even in recent years, where I have wrestled with who I am in Jesus. The devil loves to poke us in these places. He loves to remind us that we live in brokenness because of ourselves or because of others. And he loves to feed into that. The events of our lives are powerfully affected when something or someone wrongs against us or when we wrong others. But that doesn't have to be our identity. And so this morning, if you were to catch only one major thought, I would long for you to hear this. If you walk away and you remember nothing else, would you just dial in with me for a moment and hear these words? Oh, dear friends, there is life on the other side of suffering. There is life on the other side of disappointment. And there's life on the other side of sin. And Jesus is so faithful and he's so good to shine brightly when we come and when we repent and when we embrace the, the gospel-given, the gospel-centered identities that God has given to us as forgiven children of the King. The story of Nehemiah is so beautiful on so many levels. But to start out, we see the grace of God at work in such a powerful and beautiful way. He is living a great life. He's a cupbearer to the king. He's living in the palace. He's got a great job. He has to drink the, the king's wine and the king's drinks to see if there's poison. But because of who he is, he is he's living really a privileged life. But as his brother comes to visit him, the very first thing that he goes to, the very first place that he draws into is his identity as a child or as a chosen person of the king of, of Israel. And his brother comes and he asks him, he says, tell me about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. Tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me how we're doing. This is an identity question. And when he finds out that that the province is in great trouble and disgrace, that the wall's still broken down, that the people are still in exile. His heart breaks, and he realizes that something is terribly wrong. Friends, I've experienced in my life over and over and over again that when there's brokenness in my story, when there's heartbreak, when there's sorrow, God is so faithful, and he's so gracious, and he's so generous to just gently whisper in my ear, this isn't okay. It's not right. I have more for you. I'm going to do more for you if you'll just open your heart and embrace what's going to come next. And I know that there's lots of stories of brokenness in our room. I know that there's lots of pain and there's lots of sorrow. But I also know that God graciously and generously whispers into our hearts that there's more for us to have. And it's not okay. He's a generous God and he's a gracious God. And when he whispers into our hearts, when he whispers into our souls, it's so important that we pay attention and we respond to that because there's a blessing to come that is far surpassed or far more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. There's a blessing to come, but we have to respond to that. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of prosperity gospel that, you know, your, your bill came last month from 
uh, Atco gas, and it was hundreds of dollars more than you thought it should have been, and you can't pay that bill. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. What I'm talking about is our identity as Christians. I'm talking about overcoming sorrow, overcoming brokenness, overcoming defeat, overcoming the shame, those banners that are over our head. Those aren't meant to be ours to carry. Jesus has more. That gentle reminder that God wants to do something special for you is such a gift. And from Nehemiah, God graciously shows him that the identity of the Israelite people is in the wrong place. It's broken, and that he has more for them to come. And Nehemiah opens his hands. He gets down on his knees, and he weeps, and he wails, and he fasts, and he experiences the grace of God in a fresh way. As Nehemiah is weeping here, as he's down on his knees, he does what so many of us do in moments of brokenness. He calls out to God, and he invites him in. And he looks for the lift of Jesus, and he longs for, for the work of Jesus, not just into the physical transformation of Israel's law, which is going to come, and it was miraculous. It was unbelievable. 53 days, the walls of Jerusalem get rebuilt. But what he looks for is an identity transformation. And it starts with an acknowledgement of brokenness. It's so often the case, isn't it, that in the pit of despair, we're brought to places where we have to make a decision. Are we going to figure this out on our own? Are we going to continue to hold the reins and control the situation, trying to figure out how we're going to resolve the problem? Or are we going to surrender to that whisper of God? Are we going to let him come in and let him be God again? Are we going to let go and are we going to let God? Friends, there's a powerful work that takes place here in verses 4 to 8 or 4 to 7 that I think is critical to us embracing our gospel-centered identities again. It's a critical posture and it's, an, it's a hard posture. It's gut-wrenching. It, it takes strength. It takes courage. It takes like everything we've got. It takes community. But if we can embrace it, oh friends, it's so powerful in the healing process. There's a powerful work that takes place when we can verbalize, finally verbalize our broken situations and let God step in to do his healing work. It helps us to move up and into the identities that he longs for us to carry. Look what, look what happens with Nehemiah here. On his knees in, in verse 5, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps the covenant of love. He, like, he's desperate for God here. And he keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear what the prayer your servants is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you, and we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave to your servant Moses. This is a powerful moment of confession and repentance. It's a powerful moment where Nehemiah lets go of the reins and he says, you know what, God, we did this. We are going to own this situation. We are not going to heal unless we confess and we declare that we have been unfaithful. We have been wicked. And we have tried to be gods ourselves instead of letting you do your job. These are powerful words, friends, and not only do they have, uh, or sorry, there is power in our words, friends, and not only do they have power to do harm, 
They also have power to shape us in our healing processes and in our journeys as God intends and longs to do restoration work in us. The truth of the matter is, is that for many of us here today, the brokenness that we carry has come as a result of other people who have hurt us or maimed us or abused us in certain ways. And we've held on to that secret and we've buried it deep into our soul. And for years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 50 years or more, we've held the secret deep inside our soul, thinking that it's just ours to have. Nobody needs to know. Nobody's going to care. Nobody needs to be bothered with what happened to me all those years ago. And the problem with, with that kind of living, the problem with keeping uh, secrets in the dark, is that it just leads us to further broken places. It gives Satan the opportunity to have a foothold into our souls, and he can use those moments to continue to paint that banner over our head that says, you should be shamed for that. You could have done more. You're so broken. You're not worthy. Friends, when we allow light to shine into the darkness, God does a powerful work to cast Satan out of those dark places in our soul. And it's so critically important that we bear with one another the, thing, the broken parts of our story, even though at times it's so gut-wrenchingly hard. It's powerful. And I don't mean that 320 of us have to take turns to come onto the stage and say, well, this happened at this date, and because of this, this is how I've had to live my life. No, I'm not talking about that per se. But what I am talking about is funding, finding one or two other people, about coming to the Almighty God of Heaven together, and just saying, this is a part of my story. And I'm not going to hold on to it anymore. I'm not going to let Satan have that spot in my heart. I am going to let light shine into the darkest parts of my soul. And I'm going to let Jesus do his work in me. There's power in our, word fr in our words, friends. And it is so powerful when we confess or when we declare the things that have been done, the sins that have been done, and allow God to enter back into the corners of our heart. He was 17 years old, and he always seemed to have his father's favor. It didn't seem to matter what he did. He was the youngest son, and even though the older brother should have gone first, he always seemed to get the first opportunity. He always got the, the best piece. He always got the nicest clothes. He always had the best opportunities. He would walk around with a smile on his face, but to be honest, for the most part, it was just an innocent smile. He wasn't smug in any way. He wasn't trying to rub his, uh, his provisions or his blessings in anyone other's faces. He was just a man who, who delighted in the, in, the, in the blessings that came in his life. And his brothers couldn't handle it. When they saw him smiling, when as he would walk towards them, they just thought he was being smug. And so bitterness and resentment grew into their hearts. And they just became more and more enraged and bitter with him. One day the brothers were off working and as the son was at home, the, the dad said to him, son, you know, it's been a long time. Why don't you go and see your brothers and just spend some time with them? He was aware of some of the tension that was there. And so the, the son went out and he went to visit the brothers at work. And as he did, they could see him coming off in the distance. They were busy working, but here came that smug little brat. And as he got close, uh, anger just seemed to rage inside of them. They were seething by the time he got into their presence. And as soon as he got there, the middle brother reached out and punched him in the face, and he fell to the ground. 
The brothers came together and they beat on him and they beat on him and they beat on him until blood was coming out of the side of his mouth and then they began to pull at his clothes. It was an awful scene. It was a brokenness. As he laid on the ground moaning and his brothers were around him, they conspired or they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with this little brat. They didn't want him in their lives anymore and it happened to be at that time that the men walked by. They said, what's up with him? They said, I don't know, we want nothing to do with that kid. They said, well, we'll take him. They said, well, for what? They said, we'll give you 400 bucks. And that's the day the trafficking began. For years, that boy was passed off from person to person. And eventually, he found himself in a, in a foreign land, in a distant land. And as he got to that distant land, he, he happened to uh, be sold to somebody who actually gave a rip about him. And he began to work for that person. He was a leader in the country, in the community. And as he began to work, he began to build uh, some credentials around him. He was a really good worker. He was wise. He was, he was a great steward. He took care of things really well. And he grew in stature and he grew in responsibility. And this leader was just so proud of him and the way, the, the man he was becoming. We'll go back to the original family and in the land that this young brother had come from things got really hard there was a depression and economic hardship uh there was there was famine in the land and and they couldn't figure out ways to make ends meet and so the brothers set out and they decided that they were going to try to find more provisions for their family so that they could survive and in a matter of a god-given coincidence of which there are many in the sovereignty of god the brothers end up in a room where the younger brother was overseeing the, the rationing, or the distribution, rather, of food and supplies. They waited in a lineup for hours, and as they came into the room, the brother saw them from the back, and a lump came up in his throat. They didn't recognize him at all. But there was these men that had abused and tortured this little brother, and immediately he could feel the brokenness growing inside of him. That lump started to fill up in his eyes and tears started to pour down his face. And as the brothers got closer and they were next in line, he looked at the other workers in the room. The, the younger brother looked at the other workers in the room and he said, get out of here. The clerks and the clerics, the, the distributors, the warehouse men, everybody out of the room right now. And everybody was confused, but he was the boss and so everybody leaves. And he points at the brothers and he said, you guys stay. And I mean, they're right freaked out. And the doors close, and as soon as the doors close, the younger brother falls to his knees. And he starts to weep, and he starts to wail. And these older brothers are looking at him, and they're like, what in the world is going on? And the younger brother looks up at them, and he says, I'm your younger brother. I'm the one that you cast off. The brothers were terrified. They wanted to run, but there was nowhere to go. The doors were closed, and... In some cases, they were locked. And as he looked at them with tears in his eyes, he looks up and he says, I forgive you. The younger brother urged them to listen to his story of how, yes, he had been brutalized, but God had sent him off to a far-off land, and there he had gained favor. And now, you know, he was able to provide for his family in a fresh way. He was able to hug his brothers for the first time and forgive them. He was able to give to them something they desperately needed. And the curse of broken, the, the cycle of dysfunction was destroyed. It was broken. 
and relationships started to get restored again. In case you missed it, I'm talking about the story of Joseph from Genesis chapter 37 to 47. Took a few liberties in there, but for the most part, that's the story. And it's amazing what happens when, when, when Joseph comes to his brothers who brutalized him, and he just lays before them his desire to be whole with them again. It has unbelievable power to transform a situation. It has unbelievable power, friends, to remove the shame from our shoulders. It has unbelievable power when we verbalize our own sins and we seek forgiveness or when we approach others and say, I want to be one with you again. And, and what happened? We need, I need to forgive and we need to move on. There is unbelievable power. Light shines into darkness when we bring sin to the surface. Sin is not meant to hide in the depths of our heart. Sin is meant to be broken. And it's what Jesus has done for us. When he hung on the cross, as we sung about in, in most of those songs, but it's specifically in Glorious Day. When, we, when he hung on the cross, the curse of sin was broken. And the banner over us is not a banner that says, you are shameful, you are disgusting, and you are destroyed. No, the banner over us says, you are a chosen, delightful child of the king. You're my son. You're my daughter whom I love. And I'm going to keep you forever. Friends, we're not meant to shamefully carry broken identities. And in the story of Nehemiah, when he comes and he confesses his sin in, in verses 6 and 7, oh, something powerful takes place. Light bursts forth into darkness. And the story and the identity of the Israelite people and of Nehemiah's ancestors and of Nehemiah himself starts to get renewed. For some of us here today, the prospects of talking about our dark places is sickening. You're literally sitting here this morning. Maybe your hands are trembling. There's, there's just something in your gut that wants to just run from this place. But hear me when I say that there's a great life that Jesus has for us on the other side of suffering and disappointment and sin. And it is worth way more than all of the pain and suffering that we've been going through. Bringing light to the darkness is the first step. There's a few steps that take place after that that I'm not going to get into this morning, but I have a couple of books that maybe for you, you want to journey through with a couple of people in the next season of life. One, a number of our leaders have been working through. It's called Soul Care. Seven Transformational Principles for a Healthy Soul. A wonderful way to work through some of the dark places of our life and allow the light of Jesus to shine again so that we live in healthy ways with healthy identities. The other is a book that I got this week, was given this week, Life's Healing Choices. Again, ways to, to move forward, to have freedom from our hurts, our hang-ups, and our habits. If you're interested in moving forward in some of this stuff, it is utterly transformational. And critically important. Nehemiah ends this passage with a powerful declaration of who he is discovering in fresh ways he is again. He says in verse 10, he says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. That is a powerful identity declaration. That is a gospel-centered declaration saying we are the king's kids. And he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this, your servant, and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor. In the presence of this man, I was a cupbearer with him. 
Nehemiah was just a guy. He was just a lay person working in the king's, in the king's uh, castle. And yes, he had a great job. But he was just a guy that God used in incredible ways to restore the identity of Israel and himself again. And as they discover that identity, God starts to do miracles in their life and in, the, in, in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that never would have taken place had he not done the soul care work to hear the whisper of Jesus, to hear the whisper of God, the gracious whisper of God, and to bring light into the darkness of sin. There's no question that our sins and the sins of others have broken us down, friends, but this is not what our identity in Christ is. Jesus is the one that determines, is the one who determines that. And coming into this new ministry here, can I implore you to live in the victory of Jesus? Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 43. I love these words. Uh, God brought them to mind on Thursday this last week. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator and king. I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all its chariots and horses. I drew them back beneath the waves and they drowned. Their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. He defeated the brokenness is what it says here. He says, but don't remember that. Remember this. It is nothing compared to what I am going to do to you. For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. This is gospel work, friends. This is the work that we celebrate and we remember as we come to the communion table, which we're about to do. This is us embracing the God-given identities of, of children of the king that he longs for us to carry. Not identities of brokenness and shame, but identities of victory and abundance in Jesus. It's about Jesus renewing our story, about bringing light into the dark places of our heart. And so I want to finish by asking you this question. Yesterday we were up in Calgary and, and we were at Cross Iron Mills, which is a little bit crazy to consider that we would go to a place like that for back-to-school shopping, but away we went. We had a great day together as a family. It was scary at times, but we made it. Friends, what if September and fall 2018 in our lives was more about what God was going to do on the interior of our hearts than on the exterior? What if this fall we took deliberate steps to not make sure that the clothes on our back looked new or that the, the pens that we write with in our hand were, were full of ink, but what if we took more effort to make sure that the, soul, that the, the, the heart in our soul was healthy again? I'm going to allow you to reflect on that for a moment. And, and maybe the case is this morning that you're ready to start fresh in a new way. We're going to invite the communion stewards to come forward, and as they do, the worship team's going to come. And we're going to have a few minutes as the elements are being distributed to have an opportunity just to reflect. And I'm going to suggest to us that this is a great time to start fresh with God. The communion table is all about remembrance, and it's all about celebration. It's a place where we can come and where we can lay our burdens at the, at the feet of Jesus and we can just say, I'm done with this broken identity stuff and I'm ready for a fresh start. I confess, and you can fill in the blank, and God, would you do a new work in me? It might be this morning that 
before you partake of the elements, you need to go to somebody in this room or you need to write yourself a note and say, after church is done, I'm going to go and find so-and-so or I'm going to call so-and-so and we're going to begin the hard work of making things right again. But as we do, be reminded that the curse of broken identities is in fact broken. Jesus' work on the cross to hang on the cross defeated the grip and the power of sin in our lives. And then when his blood was poured out, we were declared as holy, righteous people. The bride is radiant white, friends, because of Jesus. We are seen as holy, righteous people because the blood of Christ was poured out for us. Jesus has done the work, and he didn't just leave things broken and then say, okay, go on and figure it out on your own. No, he saved us, and then he sanctified us. He heals us, and someday soon he's going to come and get us. As the elements are passed around, let me encourage you to reflect on that in light of what we've been talking about today from the book of Nehemiah. As the elements are passed, you just take a few moments to reflect on your own story. You might want to confess the broken parts of your story. You probably want to bring them to light. For sure, you're going to long to have Jesus touch you in a new way. We're going to distribute the bread, and then in a moment, I'm going to come back on stage. I'm going to ask you to hold it. We're going to, I'm going to come back on stage, and we're going to bless it, and then we'll partake of it together, and then we'll distribute the cup. And in between these moments, you sing, you pray, you sit, you stand. Actually, don't stand. Just sit, because we're going to pass the trays around. But you do what's appropriate in these moments that the Holy Spirit is whispering into your heart. And then we'll partake together. Let's enter into a time of communion. Let's come before Jesus and embrace those gospel-given identities.